Welcome to another episode of Thick and Thin, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nathan. What's up, Nathan? What's up, man? Um, it feels like, uh, you know, after we had recorded the George Floyd protest episode back in June and, you know, after the the, the, the killing and subsequent protests around the country, you know, society as a whole was becoming more aware uh, we were making progress uh, to a more equitable scenario. But I think one of the things that people starting to realize may have always realized is this is a very long journey. And every so often there's a reminder that we have so much further to go. And I think this week has been another reminder that even though we started sports again, even though it feels like we're slowly creeping back to what we consider normal life, uh, for a lot of people out there, it's still not the case. And it's still um, a battle each and every day. And I think um, the NBA reminded us of that and other leagues did as well. It was definitely very interesting last couple uh, 24 hours um, 48 hours, actually. Um, and, let, you know, let's let's go back to what exactly happened. So in the Milwaukee Bucks yesterday morning, Wednesday morning, um, did not show up uh, for the game against the Magic or did not walk out onto the floor. The Magic yeah. were already on the floor practicing. The Magic then subsequently decided to leave as well. And that kind of set a, um, a ripple effect where the remaining games, the teams decided not to play them. And effectively, all the games got postponed. And the NBA, you know, this happened so fast because the Milwaukee Bucks uh, walkout was not discussed, came as a surprise. Even the players um, decided it pretty shortly beforehand. Mm-hmm. And last night there was a big meeting with a lot of the players. And, and the big news was that the, there was a vote, at least a preliminary vote, on whether to resume the season or whether this warranted yeah. suspending the season altogether. And the Clippers and Lakers walked out of that meeting, um, LeBron leading the way. Yeah, And this was powerful, obviously, because the two top teams, the ones who carry the most sway in terms of uh, the most leverage, um, being big market teams with stars, walk out while the rest of the teams actually voted on resuming the season. So yeah. um, a lot of discourse going on last night on whether the season was going to happen or not. This morning, there was a call um, with all the players and the owners also um, had a separate call or it was the same call. Um but it was ultimately decided that they would resume the, the playoffs. Yep. Um, and as of now, it is slotted to start again on Saturday. So yeah. that's yeah. kind of the quick recap. But, yeah, so um, we're recording this Thursday night. Obviously, this situation seems like it's fluid. I think even 24 hours before this, there was a lot more that was happening than that has now shifted or changed or been answered for. I think, you know... It sounds like the resumption of the season is based on meeting a lot of proactive uh, points uh, in an agenda that the players have provided, whether that's, you know, more uh, publicity for voting and registration, more publicity for, you know, anti-police brutality and, and, and being on the forefront of change versus just not necessarily just reacting. Right. So after the George Floyd protests, this was obviously a huge point of contention is like, should we even come back and play? There are things that are bigger than basketball. And they decided ultimately, like, this is their avocation. This is also the platform that gives them the biggest audience. And so they were going to come back. And uh, part of the stipulation there was that the owners created a $300 million, uh, like, justice fund, essentially, over the next 10 years. And, you know, then we see something like this happen again, where it's another atrocity against the black community. And there's more conversation of, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why can't we 
be treated equally? Why can't we? I thought Doc Rivers had a very poignant like press conference after um, Clippers Mavs game five. And, you know, the Raptors and Celtics were actually the first that I think we had heard about uh, because they didn't kick off their series till Thursday. So they had a little bit of little bit of time. And look, I think. You know, people have said this, so this isn't a new opinion, but I really think in in terms of magnitude, uh, not just within the NBA, but the ripples it sent around the sports world, around the world in general, this is one of the most momentous uh, occurrences in in our lifetimes as as sports fans, frankly. Uh, When you think about the how rare it was for them to do what they did in the position that they did, right? A playoff game, not a regular season game, but an actual playoff game with real meaningful stakes, not to mention in a bubble designed only to play basketball because we're in the middle of August, thanks to this worldwide pandemic that's already killed 180,000 Americans. So when you consider the factors in play, everything that's at stake, I don't remember a situation that's been as, um, you know, large scale and also important uh, from a social element, you know, maybe back since the 60s and 70s. It was powerful, too, because it, the Bucks did it as a surprise. Now, as you mentioned, the Celtics and Raptors were discussing yeah. it. But when the Bucks did it come out into the court, everyone was caught off guard, including the coaches, the coaching yeah. staff uh, for both teams. And I think there's a lot of power in that because, you know, one of the, the things we've criticized the NBA for is, Look, they they want to take a stance against all this injustice. They want to support Black Lives Matter. They yeah. go through this whole process of curating phrases that you can put on the back of the jerseys. And yeah. a lot of people felt like all that was manufactured. Yeah. And so this time it wasn't like a let's all get together, figure out what's a way to protest. It was yeah. boom, bang. The bucks didn't come out. What's going to happen? The cameras are on the court. No one's yeah. showing up. And there's a lot of power in that. A lot of power in that kind of shock value that it created. And for that reason, I think it was good the Bucks didn't um, come out uh, and, and actually announce their plan. But then at the same time, you know, the downside of that was everyone was left scrambling. And yeah. so it led to a weird 24 hours where yeah. you heard a lot of reactions from different players. Um, clearly, that meeting was pretty contentious. I think yeah. a lot of players had different opinions. And I think ultimately, they're all kind of in a better place today. But it was just crazy how fast everything was happening. And, and a lot of it was because they just didn't have time to kind of align to a singular point of view. Yeah. It was like, look, all of a sudden you're faced with a situation. What are you going to do? The The CBA is at risk. Um, you know, this the season's at risk. And these guys have to come up with a decision fast. So it was wild, man. It was definitely. Yeah I, think, yeah, I think that's the big thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is around what the Bucks did like you said, caught the world off guard, but it also caught NBA players off guard, right? And one of the things that has been universally true about the NBA, not just with the restart and with the social justice aims and even forming the bubble, but in general, the league falls in line behind its stars. It's a very unified voice. We've talked about this before where the NFL is like a scattered amount of roles and archetypes, and it's just a different uh, players union to really wrangle and and, and kind of have some type of unification, but the NBA is not that case, right? Everyone has a certain stature. Everyone, for the most part, has a certain even income threshold. Like it's just a different set. And because of that, people generally have a commonality in the message that they put out. And I thought it was really interesting that the Bucks did this and I supported them fully for doing it. But I also think that it's fair for other players to kind of wish they had been keyed in on some of this because I think 
from the perspective of everything they've done, it's all been about, hey, we're in lockstep, right? You know, talk about, like you said, returning to the bubble, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter on the court. Here are the phrases. We're all going to kneel for the national anthem. Like we're all going to mention Breonna Taylor and other victims during our press conferences. Like all of those types of things were very much orchestrated and, and there's strength in numbers. At the same time, context has to be involved here. And the Bucks, they play, their practice facility is 35 miles from Kenosha, Wisconsin, where Jacob Blake was, was shot seven times. And this is personal to them. Sterling Brown has had an altercation with where cops basically just there was the definition of just racial prejudice with with what that went down with him. And he actually was able to successfully sue the Milwaukee Police Department for how they treated him. John Henson, who was a former Milwaukee Buck that several of these players have played with, got stopped at a mall for buying jewelry because they assumed he was up to something. And so I think it became personal for the Bucks on a level where it wasn't orchestrated even within their locker room. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to go do this and not tell anyone. I think it was, we're about to go on the court and our heads are not into it, our hearts are not into it. And at that point, what can you ask of anybody, right? Like, yep. these guys have a platform. These guys have more power, more privilege than other people. But the, the, what people don't understand is this isn't millionaires crying. For themselves. This is millionaires crying for everyone who can't be heard. And I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like if LeBron says something, someone's listening. If some random guy on the street who's been oppressed or has been has been racially pre- prejudiced against says something, nobody cares. And isn't that the exact reason we're in this position? So yeah. what did you think about the Bucks? Like where were you on the Bucks kind of just doing this? Because I, I see both sides and I think it's fair that players were were were, you know, Contentious is the word you use, and it's the word that's been reported. And, I, and I'm curious, you know, what your take is on that. I, I think the Bucks. I think they did the right thing. Like you said, this hit too close to home. Um, mm-hmm. Not only because of the Kenosha shooting, but obviously everything you've mentioned, all the incidents those Bucks players have faced. And the other thing people don't realize is this is um, these all these events have been emotionally taxing on all these guys. Like think about us; it's emotionally taxing on all of us, and yeah. we don't even. It isn't. We can't. Uh, relate to it at the same level as all these guys, right? right? And they, every NBA player has their own stories. They've got family members. They've got kids who yeah. they're worried about for their safety when they see events like this and worried about, you know, how am I going to explain it to them what's happening? Yeah. And so when this is so emotionally taxing on all these guys, and now the the Bucks when they make that move, all of a sudden, not only are you trying to process what just happened a couple of days ago, you have to now make a really pivotal decision and voice yeah. an opinion on whether the NBA should end the season. And you got the owners in your ears. You got maybe your agents are in your ears, like, you know, telling you there's so many people trying to tell you what to do. Yeah. And you want to say continue to play, but then you're going to fall fall into the criticism that these guys only care about money. Yeah. You want to say don't play, then people are going to say, what what is it going to do? What's the benefit of boycotting? Nobody cares what you think. And it's a really tough position. And I think... So I guess what I'm trying to say is that it was going to be tough no matter what. And so I'm glad the Bucks went out and did what they did because that was the shock value this kind of a moment needed. It needed a, a catalyst like this. And it, I mean, it caused so many ripple effects you see even across other sports. And I, I want to get to that a little bit later about how it impacted other sports. But I think if it wasn't done in this manner, um, I don't think it would have been as impactful. So I was yeah. very much on Yeah, let's get to that now, actually, because I think that is really what dictated when we talk about um, you can't measure the success of a protest. That's not really how it's done, right? It's almost 
you know, in the way you can't measure how does advertising work? Does that, you know, it's like, it's all about impressions. It's all about attracting eyeballs and getting people to understand what you're trying to say. And like, I thought that the biggest challenge for the NBA is always that they operate in a sphere of influence who do not disagree with them, right? The people at this point who follow the NBA, who love the NBA like us, we are progressives. We're, we're quite aware, empathetic. And I'm not going to say like, you know, we're out here doing everything we can on the front lines. But I think if you ask any people who are true NBA fans, they would be wholeheartedly in support of what the Bucks did, what the NBA did in general, what they stand for. So the question was always, how do we get people who aren't this group to, to acknowledge what's going on and to really take a step back and gain some perspective? Now, that may never happen, right? There are people in this country who are never going to ever change their opinion about things. But I thought the reason why the ripple effect was so important is because suddenly it gets to their world that they do care about, right? NFL practices get canceled. MLB games get canceled. Um, You know, there's other sports that are now taking the lead. And I think that's so important because ultimately – you can only shout at the cloud so long about how you just want people to shut up and dribble. But we're past that point. That's not the reality anymore. And the sooner people get on board with the the new wave of athlete who's educated, who's informed, who's outspoken, I think you get to a point where you actually start to listen to them. And this isn't like the, you know, I'm never going to watch again because I'm sick of this. And I think getting out of that NBA echo chamber was actually one of the most important things and why I think even though they're restarting on Saturday, which again, I wholeheartedly support and I think that's the right idea. It's a success because it's now past just NBA Twitter. It's past the NBA ecosystem. Absolutely. And the NBA is 80% black at the end of the day. So like you said, it's, they're always, even if you're not on board of the movement and you're on an NBA team, you kind of have to fall in line. Um, But with baseball teams with football teams that's not the case like football you know goodell came out with that statement after um george floyd and and kind of all the different protests were going on he came out with a statement and of course it was a little softer the nfl is not going to take a strong stance at the nba but think about how far they've come along since four years ago what happened with kaepernick like now goodell is making a public statement in support of some of these uh, issues and and now yeah people can look at and say oh practice practices got canceled for only a handful of teams that wouldn't have happened uh, a year ago. That may not have happened if we didn't have this protest by the by the NBA teams, right? So it's slow progress, but the fact that it's trickling into other leagues yeah. is great because now sports is taking a more unifying front. Too often, MLB, NBA, uh, NFL kind of operate in their own spheres. I mean, even fans like NFL, NBA fans, they they kind of go at each other too about which sport's better, which sport's more progressive, this and that. Or NBA thinks they're more progressive. NFL thinks their sport matters more. And this is one thing that's actually starting to unify across sports. And even NASCAR, we saw for a sport that's as, um, I mean, come on, it's it's really rooted in the South, right? There's a lot of controversy yeah. around. I mean, they just you don't have to you don't have to flags. paint with the soft brush here. Yeah, but NASCAR. even NASCAR is making moves towards that. So I, I think this is helping shift the pendulum in the right direction. And for people who say, "Oh, it happened so quickly." Like, yeah, I wish maybe it lasted for a few more days and we didn't play like two days later. But ultimately, I think there was an impact and that impact is being felt. It's not going to change anything immediately, but it's it is making small positive changes. 
Yeah, I never thought that the season was really in jeopardy. I think the Lakers and Clippers, and specifically LeBron, um, were probably a little upset they weren't keyed in on what was happening, but then they saw it as an opportunity to use their leverage to really enact some action. And I think, you know, the owners have been reported to say, well, some of them at least, like, what else do you want us to do? Like, we've been in lockstep with you. You know, we've been supportive. We've put out public statements. We've donated money. And I think it's actually very important that the players came out with a list of things that they wanted to see addressed, right? Right down to Milwaukee, the Bucks were on a conference call with, I think, the attorney general or the lieutenant governor or someone in Wisconsin, you know, set up by the owners to say, hey, here's the type of reform that we want to see. And I think that's really important because here's the reality. Change is not going to happen tomorrow. We know this. But at the same time, a black person is going to be unlawfully and basically inhumanely killed at some point as well. That's the sad reality of life. So what happens to the league or any league when this tragically happens in two months, right? Understanding that what we're working towards is going to take time, but there are actual milestones or actual guardrails in place to say that we're moving down this path of progress. And I thought that was really important that the NBA Players Association was able to act quickly to do that and say, here are the things that we want to push on. Because look, emotions are raw, right? There's a lot of things going on. If you don't want to play and suddenly your whole team is like, I just can't go out there because I'm heartbroken, that doesn't mean you have a plan. And the fact that they were able to get it together that quickly, I think is super impressive. And it speaks to the the, the quality of the leadership, right? With Chris Paul and Andre Guadalla and all those guys. And, and look, the owners in the NBA, whether or not, whatever their true beliefs are, they know that that their players have power beyond anything in any American sport. So I think they are much more willing to kind of follow their lead versus NFL where Jerry Jones is the biggest man, baddest man on campus, right? Nobody can tell him anything. Nobody can, nobody can like convince him of anything. He still hasn't come out and said black lives matter. And it doesn't even matter because if the Cowboys open their doors, it's going to be 100% full. And so he doesn't actually have to, um, you know, move in that direction. And and like, that's a reflection of just how powerful the NBA Players Association is. And I'm glad they wielded that power in a way that was really meaningful, uh, you know, momentous, but also actionable. Hey, absolutely. And there's a lot of action still coming out. And one of the requests they had of, of owners is, look, owners are saying, what can more, more can we do? Well, the players are saying, be proactive. Don't be reactive. These owners are often too reactive. It's like once there's pressure on them to do something, okay, let's donate some money. Like these guys need to be proactive. I mean, why is Zion going and like literally paying for all the laid off yeah. um, workers at the arena when that's something the owner should do, right? Why is a rookie on your team funding that? Yeah. Why is, you know, Cleveland formed a sports alliance between three different teams. But guess what? It's an, it's an alliance between the, the GMs and then they're coming up with, a program to actually combat social injustice. Mm-hmm. Why aren't the owners involved with this? Like th- this is the point where people keep saying, what do you expect from the owners? Like, and yeah, the 300 million over 10 years is great. Guess what? That's 1 million a year from each owner, 1 million a year. That's literally pennies for them. So, yeah. and, and, and these NBA players are donating so much more from their own paychecks. So I, there is a lot that needs to be done and it's not going to happen overnight, even though NBA owners are progressive. Um, you know, you have Vivek Ranadive, you have a lot of the Mark Cuban. There's still a lot of owners who sit in the background 
who don't really participate in this. And so um, I, I'm glad they came out with specific demands for the owners. I'm glad that they're still working on voting is, has become a key issue. You know, Chris Paul's talked about getting his entire team registered to vote. And that's another thing they discussed is how can we yeah. get enable voting in our communities? Um, and, you know, the Houston Rockets opened up the Toyota Center as a voting center, uh, a polling yeah. place. So hopefully more teams do that. So there are things happening. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see more uh, in the next couple of weeks. I think what's so interesting is there's always been a dissonance between a predominantly black league and extremely wealthy white owners, right? We know this. Uh, there's just a natural divide. I think what we're seeing in our country is what used to be just an argument of like, hey, I'm Democrat, hey, I'm Republican, has turned, has taken a life of its own in terms of the polarity in which we talk about a Trump supporter versus everyone else, right? And if you think about it, most of these owners are likely Republican, right? It makes all the sense in the world for the tax treatment, for everything that comes along with, um, you know, the benefits of corporations, like just find it just fiscally, like take out all of the um, visceral negativity around the last four years and think about a typical Republican and a typical Democrat, and they're mostly voting Republican. They're donating to Republican parties. Now, that is such a basically almost in some people's eyes, like a criminal act in a sense, right? Yep. Because because the Republican Party is taking a life of its own in the sense of what Trump has done to it from not just we're way, we're way past the fiscal element, right? We're into xenophobia. We're into um, just a general crudeness and, and sort of like vitriol towards the idea of equality. And I think it doesn't change that they need those tax treatments. You know what I mean? And so it's it, it's very um, fine line that owners are having to walk now. Um, NFL owners don't care, right? They'll be like, yeah, Trump, let me come to the RNC. But with NBA owners who have to be that careful, they are now on a tightrope, right? Between what's maybe personally beneficial to them versus what their conscience might be uh, yielding towards and what their players are pleading for. Um, and I think that's a very interesting situation and circumstance for them to be in. And it's time for them to put their chips on the table, like you said. Yeah. And, and, the, and the NBA, I mean, look, even the NBA, right? Uh, it's a multi-billion dollar organization and people want the NBA to come out and condemn China and right. And they're going to be pretty tight lipped about some of these things. They're still going to restrict what players are putting on the Jersey. So uh, it's, if the NBA is also treading this very carefully, you can imagine the owners who, like you said, are at their core Republican at the core thinking about their financial interests are going to be even harder to persuade, to come out and make very provocative statements um, but I, it really has to start there because they're the ones who wield a lot of influence. They're the ones who wield political influence. Um, and so when people ask, like, what are the players, you know, what is this all going to mean? Like, what change can they drive? Yes, they can do a lot of stuff at the grassroots level, but because they are so high profile and because they're generating billions of dollars for these owners, mm -hmm. that's the real influence that no one else can influence. Like, we can all do grassroots stuff. We can yeah. all, I mean, we can't, influ we can't be role models like NBA players are. So I get that. But the real thing that we can unlock with these players is getting that influence up at the ownership level. But yeah. that won't come anytime soon. So it, it's starting to slowly 
I think shift that way, but um, like there's still too many owners who, like you said, have interest to protect. Well, I think it's a good point though, right? Because NBA players wielding power is not new per se, but understanding how to leverage that power effectively, I think is an emerging trend, right? Like take a guy like Jalen Brown, who is the third best player or so on the Celtics. He's 23 or 24, you know, pretty, pretty good NBA player. Nobody's like, you couldn't walk down the street. You're not seeing a ton of Jalen Brown jerseys, right? A guy like that with his intelligence, with his maturity, just understanding the feel for the moment, like, and understanding how to use his sphere of influence, like you said, for the greater good is something that I don't know existed 20 years ago by, from whoever the version of Jalen Brown was. Right. Mm. And I think he's it's I don't want to say it's easy for the LeBrons and Chris Pauls of the world, but it's definitely uh, more structurally uh, feasible for those guys, for guys who are not big stars. Jalen Brown, uh, George Hill, um, some of these other players that have come out and, you know, um, Malcolm Brogdon, like some of these other guys that have come out and really understood, Okay, here's how I can use my platform, whatever the size of that platform may be. Um, and I can get the word out. And now suddenly that's going to be what people come to me and talk about. And then it's going to snowball. And I think understanding that that cycle is, is so important because, you know, we always talk about like, how do you get more notoriety? How do you get more traction? It starts, like you said, at the grassroots level. Now, you and me have a, you know, microscopic platform compared to yep. someone who is an NBA player. Yep. But at the same time. You could argue they have a microscopic platform compared to the superstars of the game, the Michael yeah. Jordans, LeBron James, the Kobe Bryants, the Shaquille O'Neal's, those guys in history, right? And I think like you know, a great example is the protest is the, the Twitter headline. What's not the Twitter headline is the conversation they had with the Wisconsin Attorney General. But that is 1,000% directly related to their action to say, hey, you know, uh, Mark Lazary the owner of the Bucks, like, let's make this happen. Let's get someone on the phone. And suddenly the snowball starts and you actually see um, change happening. And it, it, it's not that Wisconsin, you know, Congress is going to pass legislation tomorrow to do everything they want to do. But that conversation doesn't even happen without this. Exactly. And the, I think the point you bring about stars is a good one because, yes, there's only, you know, a handful of top level stars. Uh, but compared to 20 years ago, when you look at the league, 20 years ago, you have, what, um, maybe 30 years ago, you're talking about Larry, Magic. You have some big names on big teams. But really, in the NBA today, you have guys like Jalen Brown. They're not household names, but they're still right. pretty big names. A Trey Young. You got guys on bad teams who are still, because of house of highlights, because of social media, because that we're starting to follow basketball from the AAU circuit, there's so many names and powerful voices out there. That even if it's only LeBron who can really dictate maybe things at the highest level, there's so many things the players can be doing at that grassroots level and using their influence. And I think that's what makes it very unique compared to, yes, it's always been a progressive league. Yes, it's always been skewed towards black athletes. But this is the now is when all these athletes have such a prominent voice and a lot yeah. of them are household names. Like just the casual fan knows way more names than they used to back then. So, um, I, I definitely agree that all these guys and Jalen Brown is, is such a great example. And I loved I think it was him also during that meeting who who said that, look, 
we're not going to decide to end the playoffs because we're uncomfortable with the bubble. Like, that can't be the reason we end yeah. this. Because, yes, there are some guys who, yeah, you know, they care about all this, but it, it might just be easier to end it, go home. And I, I like that statement he brought up because, and it shows, like, a lot of maturity to confront that because you have to block all that out and really make the decision based on just these factors. Yeah, I always wonder... Man, 2020 is so fucking weird. Um, it's hard to evaluate anything in like a larger context than this particular year and circumstance that we're living in. But just like take put yourself in the position of like the Bucks are playing the magic at Fisser Forum. There's 20,000 fans who are in their seats, right, waiting for game five. Can you do this? Do you do this? Um Similarly, let's say there's no bubble and they still found a way to boycott or, or, you know, protest. Do you actually have a real conversation about ending the season? Like at what point do you how do you separate the fact that there is a bubble misery in addition to everything else that's going on? And I'm not just talking about being bored, right? If me and you are in the bubble, we talked about this. We're having the time of our lives. (laughs) Send me there for as long as possible. It's not about these guys living the nightlife and clubbing. And we've joked about that, right? It's also about this side of things, which is they're powerless to go do something in their hometowns, to go drive real change. Like they literally can't leave. You get on FaceTime, you get on a conference call. That's it. Like if you have the power of some of the, some of these players, you can do a lot more to, to alleviate this, this situation than um, most normal people. But you can't really do that much when you're stuck at, you know, this hotel in Orlando. And I think that also adds a factor to it, right? Um, taking a, a you know, putting aside all of the general challenges with a bubble of just like, man, it's been six weeks. We're like kind of depressed. Like Paul George came out and said it, you know, after game five, he's like the anxiety, like it, it sort of got to me and like all of those types of things. And I think there was already probably some of that sentiment. And then you have a situation like this where you're just like, all I can do is refresh Twitter. And I don't know that some of these guys have felt this powerless in a long, long time. Yeah, I don't think they have. I mean, it, and the the point you brought up about if this happened in Pfizer Forum or would they do it? And mm-hmm. and I think that's I don't think it, they would. And there's a lot of fact, more factors at play too. With you have twenty thousand fans there, the fans may not react well to it. Um, it's you know it, it's a whole different model. Whereas it make it makes it a lot easier to do it in this bubble. And it brings me back to when we just had this discussion around should they be in the bubble or not. Yeah. When Kyrie was talking about is it worth even going and playing because we could be doing more good uh, and here as opposed to going and playing basketball away for eight weeks. Like exactly like you said where you're isolated from everything and you can't go out and actually support these movements. Right. But at the same time, I think it worked out that they came to the bubble. They gave us sports and then they said, you know what? No. Hey, we don't have to do this, and and they they essentially boycotted a game. Um, that ended up becoming more effective than if they had just not come and played basketball at all. I agree. Because, right? I it's agree. when you're given something and then it's ripped away from you, much more meaningful. And now they're going to play again, but at the same time, we know that this is a precedent that's been set. They have shown they can boycott a game. It yeah. could happen again, and maybe it won't, but now that they've done it once, I think – they, they have the confidence, the authority to potentially do it again if they need to. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the whole concept of shut up and dribble literally is born from the idea that people honestly feel that these are our entertainers that are like, you know, they're supposed to sing and dance for us. And when they're not doing that, it means they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we, we've like sort of dehumanized them in a way um, where doing something that, like this is like, why are you stepping out of line? And I think for so long, for so many years, it's, it's like, well, you guys get paid millions. Like, what's the problem? And even now, I mean, it's not like that's not said constantly. And I think what, what we're starting to understand, or at least what they are starting to make known to people is that outside of the millions, outside of um, all of the fame and all of the, the posh lifestyle is they're black men who are afraid of what happens when they drive by a cop or when they're walking by a cop. And, you know, in all honesty, the fact that this has happened to NBA players, like we talked about Sterling Brown and John Henson, is the exact idea that this is a big deal for everyone, regardless yeah. of how much money you have. Because most of these guys can't be, you know, just like picked out of a crowd and like, oh, this is this player, this is that player. Like most guys aren't known in that regard. And so to them, you know, yeah, I thought Jalen Brown, again, we're coming back to him because I just I'm so impressed with him, like in general. Uh, but he's talking about, you know, he wears number seven for the um for the Celtics, and he was talking about when I look at my jersey now, I just think about the seven times Jacob Blake was shot. Yeah. And it's like, um, it's like, fuck. Like, when you have that going through your veins, like, how can you consider yourself above the fray? Because you've seen so many people not be above the fray. Um, and ultimately, like, there's, look, we can both speak on one thing, I think, as minorities. In the U.S., where like we're both Indian American, and I think you know there's a certain kinship amongst Indian Americans, right? There's a certain like rooting for one another, believing in one another, trying to cheering for one another. Like for example, like when Vivek bought the the Kings, I was so hyped. I was like, "Holy yeah. shit! An Indian guy owns an NBA team! Like that's crazy!" I, I have no relationship to him. I don't even remember how yeah. he made his money. Like it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. But I was just so hyped. Like when Satya Nadella got got named CEO of Microsoft. I was like, that's incredible. Like, mm -hmm. and I think what I'm trying to get to is like, it doesn't matter if you are or are not living in someone's particular shoes. I think there are certain, there's a certain like, um, bond and almost unspoken brotherhood between people of minority cultures. And I think with black people, it's like that has grown even stronger from the fact that they're, they've been fighting an uphill battle for so long. And so I don't even think they think of themselves as millionaire basketball players. I think they think of themselves as like black player, black people who are as, as susceptible to any of the shit that's going on as anyone else. Yeah, exactly. And, and people talk about them as millionaires. I mean, these aren't guys who are trust fund babies or who inherited. Like these are guys think about it, they pull themselves up from, in some cases, abject poverty. Right. Um, Look at Jimmy Butler. He lived yeah. in a car. Exactly. And there are obviously cases of players who are sons of, of you know, athletes sure. and things like that. But a lot of these guys had to work hard. And think about to be an NBA player, you're what, a point zero 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 one percent of the best basketball players in the world? Yeah. Like, to if you're a millionaire, it's because you worked your ass off and you got there. Sure, it helps having genetics and being six seven, But even then, there's so many guys who you're, you're competing against. And 
to get to that point requires sweat, tears, a lot of dedication, a lot of hours put outside of, um, you know, school and everything else going on in your life. And some of these guys have a lot going on in their lives. And so for them to be criticized as these millionaires who are just, you know, complaining like out of touch or whatever. out of touch, like these guys are the most in touch compared to all the people, you know, criticizing them. Um, and so it's ridiculous to me. And then, you know, the players getting pulled over and experiencing this, like Mo Harkless, I don't know if you saw his story, but he talked about a story back when he was in um, Portland or is he in Portland? No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's in Portland, right? He talked about a story where he was in, in the car with his, I think his nephew and maybe his son driving to the game. He gets pulled over by the cop. Cop asks him for license, registration. What are you doing? Kind of being aggressive and saying there's a lot mm-hmm. of suspicious activity in the neighborhood. What are you doing? He sees the license, sees this Mo Harkless. He's like, oh, Mo, sorry. If it was you, I wouldn't have pulled you over. Hope you have a great game tonight. You know, go Blazers. And it's like, clearly these guys are treated, you know, when they, they're seen as just players. Um, yeah. And if you don't know that they're a player, that humanity is taken away from them. And so it's, I, I see a lot of this on Twitter and, you know, we, we get it. Both of us have the problem of we're, we're always on Twitter and, you get enraged, right, by all the comments and it's the discourse that happens. And it's some of it's really bots, but, but people are doing all kinds of, you know, um, backflips, mental gymnastics to explain why this is bad or why NBA players have no right to complain. And it's like when they do boycott, you have something to complain about. When they don't, you, you know, it's like, look, they do the most silent form. Of, you want them to protest without violence, but when they do that, you're going to criticize them and saying they shouldn't be protesting to begin with. So it's a tough spot. I had to log off Twitter when I saw the amount of people defending the 17 year old who killed two people at the Kenosha protest. He's being like treated like a martyr. And you know, a guy who's uh, it's, it's the juxtaposition is unreal. And, and we get sickened by it on Twitter. Imagine players, man, imagine actual black athletes who are seeing this on Twitter and dealing with this and getting, Black I don't even know like, any variety who are like, black, wait a second, like what yeah. the fuck? Imagine if you're Donovan Mitchell and, you know, Utah, like, you know, it's a primarily white state and they've had their share of kind of, you know, racial issues um, in the past yeah. in, the, in, the, in that arena too. Imagine you're Donovan Mitchell and you have your own fans just lashing out at you. Like, what are you doing? Just play basketball. Shut up. Yeah. It must like I don't know how these guys deal with it, and that's why I sometimes we make fun of Paul George, we make fun of some of these guys for how mentally soft they are. Yeah, but I think in times like this, man, it's hard to understand and empathize with what they're going on, what they're going through. Yeah, no, I think it's it's something that um, becomes more evident in times like these. Like our access to players has been has brought a lot of positives in terms of the way we're able to get to know or like have access or like get quotes or whatever, but. At some point when you like Donovan Mitchell is 24 years old or something like that, right? Like he's a kid being asked to be the most mature person in the room as like 50 year old drunk white dudes in Utah are like yelling at him. Yeah. Right. Like that is a huge burden. I mean, you talked about Zion. Think about the overall burden of being the people to start this change. It comes from the Bucks locker room. A bunch of twenty somethings who are still trying to figure life out because in the in our twenties everyone was trying to figure life out. And they have to be the ones who are the focal point of millions and millions of eyes and saying, Hey, we're gonna go do this because we think this is the right stance to take. Mm-hmm. Everyone follow our lead. That is pressure. 
Um, and I think it's something we take for granted because guys become so successful, so rich, so publicly available at such a young age. Like, I, I, I don't want to speak out of context, but I always think about like how much LeBron gets crushed for the decision mm-hmm. and, and how like of poor optics it was and poor taste. And he was like, he was 26 years old. Um, like that's not a very fair bar to judge someone on the entirety of their work, body of work from a, a possibly like a, a misaligned choice at 26. And, and like you go down the list, like all of these guys are stepping up into roles that are far beyond their years. And I think part of that comes with the spotlight and learning how to be around that. But I think part of it is like, we're blessed by a very mature and very, um, forward thinking crop of of players leading the way and by the way this is without anything from a lot of the top stars right Kawhi never says anything Harden never says anything and B doesn't really talk that much um you know Luca and Katie aren't even there yeah Steph and Katie aren't even there Luca doesn't Kyrie's not there um Luca doesn't really talk that much he's 21 like um, you know, there's a lot of guys that are still kind of missing from the equation and yet we still have what feels like a very strong presence. Um, but I think, you know, you know, you brought up the Twitter thing. I feel very kind of sad in a way about like where we are as a country and you like, you think about the upcoming election and you know, people can choose to do what they want to do. But the fact that we're still trying to call things left versus right instead of right versus wrong in a way and why certain parties have like accepted parts of their platform that's simply just what their base wants to hear rather than what you think people should be doing or how people should act in an objective way is is kind of crazy to me i mean like talked about the 17 year old i mean now you see all the headlines while well, jacob blake had a knife blah 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 and like yeah but you've shot seven times yeah, in the back. Like, is there not something in the middle? Like, is there not a taser? Is there not rubber bullet? Like, the idea that we need to go to this extreme length and then argue it with the other extreme is is so beyond my level of comprehension with how we, um, you know, attribute actions. And it sucks that people are the way they are in some cases, and it sucks that. Yeah, as much as we talk about how much good is being done, there's still so many that just don't get it. And maybe they never will, but I think, you know, hopefully this changes the enablement of such behavior. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy when you, when you talk about Jacob Blake and, you know, you don't want to give him the benefit of the doubt at all. Uh, but then you're going to give the guy who crossed state lines with the gun, a 17-year-old kid who, you know, kill two people you're going to give him the benefit of the doubt and it's like there's no objective way that people are looking at these situations and it's it's all colored it's all colored with political lens with the agenda um and it's and it became so clear with this incident because of obviously kyle rittenhouse and and what he did right after um it's all totally premeditated like you know going into any story I'm going to feel this way. You know, it's it's like it's like uh, Skip Bayless, right? It's like yeah. I remember when I used to watch um, in 2012, 2013, when Miami, LeBron's on the heat and I was still kind of falling for Skip's act. Yeah. And LeBron would have an amazing game. And it's like, all right, let me tune into first take and see what Skip Bayless is going to say. 
Yeah. And somehow, somehow he twists the narrative to support what he wants to say. And somehow LeBron was at fault. LeBron was selfish. They won the game. He dropped 40 points, but he didn't get his teammates involved. Yeah. Like there's always moving the goalposts. And that's exactly what we're ha- it's happening here. It's like yeah. no matter what the situation is, there's going to be something at fault. It's going to be Jacob Blake's uh, arrest record. It's going to be the fact that he had a knife under the floorboard of his seat. Not, it does, no one cares about the fact that he was shot seven times um, without any attempt at doing something else. Yeah, It's always going to be, but what about, what about, what about ism? And it's the same thing with LeBron in China, man. Like this is, And that's not even something that's only from the right. It's like, but now, what about Every China? tweet about, about NBA social awareness yeah. is immediately followed by 100 tweets like, why won't they comment on China? Yeah, and it's it's just unreal that people can't. I don't know. It's, they don't want to, man. Like, we, what we're doing is we're we're disturbing their realm of peacefulness, right? It's kind of like the way I think about it is like, let's take a very easy to understand example, right? Let let's take um, in India. I went to I went to India several years ago and obviously because of the size of the population because of their sort of like questionable infrastructure electricity is a big issue there right and they have to conserve power on the grid and they just turn off the electricity in the middle of the night from like 2 to 4 a.m or something like that because they just have to control it i remember the first night it was 110 degrees outside i woke up at 2 a.m on the dot the second the ac went off in the house and I am dying, right? And my comfort zone was disturbed. And there's people who are living with that, who have acclimated to that, who have understood that, who's not. And what I'm trying to draw with this analogy, I don't even know if this makes sense, but the idea is like everyone who's just like, well, I want to watch basketball and I want to score, see Giannis score 30 points and then I want to continue about my day. When Giannis is like, hey, outside of scoring 30 points, I also want to do X, Y, Z. They're like, whoa, wait a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, this isn't what I negotiated for. This isn't what I signed up for. Yeah. And suddenly it's a world they're not used to. Suddenly it's something that they're not comfortable with. And it disrupts their balance. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of. And people are showing their true colors because of that. I mean, I like that analogy because that causes you, what, two hours of discomfort when that's something that guess what? A lot of people have to live with and you have the luxury of having the AC. And it's the same yeah. with these folks. It's like, look, the discomfort of you not watching basketball for a little bit compared to what these guys are actually fighting for. Yeah. Like it. And, and then the other thing is like all these people are saying, I'm never going to watch the NBA again. You weren't watching the NBA. If yeah. this stuff bothers you this much, you were not watching. Maybe you'd catch a game or two, but you were right. not actively watching the NBA. Which is so, why I was so happy the domino effect went to other sports. Yeah, because look, I mean, they're all saying they're not going to watch the NFL if the NFL does this. They're not going to watch what? You're not going to watch any sports? Like these people, what, college football? If this trickles down to college football and you're in Alabama, you're not going to watch Alabama-Auburn? Like it's going to, at some point, it's going to affect you. And at some point, you're going to realize that. Hey, newsflash, Alabama's team is mostly black too. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like I'm waiting for it to trickle into something like the SEC right right now. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, COVID has become so political and clearly, you know, the South and these these conferences, they're the ones who are pushing the most, pushing back against this. But I want to see these movements start to trickle down into the collegiate sports. We're already seeing players be more uh, vocal about obviously being paid. And now there's a whole movement behind that. But I'm hoping that this now kids, I mean, like you said, kids these days are smart. They're like 
the NBA players are 2021 and they're very um, polished and they know what they're saying. So I think, you know, you're going to start seeing college athletes in the next couple of years take similar stands. And that'll be interesting, especially when you talk about college football. By the way, you, you, you talked about COVID. One of the most predictable things, um, and it relates to exactly the point we were just talking about, where people don't like being disrupted from their comfort zone, especially in this country. We don't ever have to sacrifice anything when you think about it. Like, there'll be a water crisis in Flint, and it's such a specific kind of isolated problem. It's not like anybody here knows what to like, how to like manage. <laughs> a shortage of water like i know california's had some issues but here and there for the most part the country is rich and it's great because of our natural resources right because everything is always available at our fingertips and we've done a great job as a country over the course of you know whatever decades and decades of building that infrastructure but what that's led to is it's impossible for people to not live the life that they have chosen to live the idea of this ideological freedom. And I knew when COVID came in and it was starting to be about restrictive behavior, I was like, there's no chance. Nobody's going to listen to this. And like for every one of us that was diligent and we're like, let's get through the virus. There's 50 other people who are like, fuck this. I'm going to continue doing what I do. If I get it, it's a cold. Um, and I think, you know, it's very clear to see why we struggled is because there's so many people like that. And it, it, it really trickles to any of these topics that we're talking about. Um, yeah, it's think, an individualistic nation. But yeah. the sad thing is you'd think with a pandemic where it's not a, oh, you know, you do what you want to do. This is something yeah. that affects everyone. Your spread is you all have to be working together to prevent the spread. And even in that, they want to stick to their individual kind of principles. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what really exposed this country because we've always been an individualistic country. It's always yeah. been like that, like you said, because of all the reasons. But at the one time there's a crisis that actually requires us to collaborate, you know, states to collaborate, um, governors, like it's a collective effort and we can't do it. We're dead we in the water. It's just some level of selflessness. Yeah. And it just doesn't exist. And doesn't I mean, exist. not yeah. obviously not everyone, but a majority of the country. And it's sad. Um and I don't know. I don't know if that's ever going to change, right? Like, or I don't know how long it'll take for that to change. Like, it, it, this, all of this, has really exposed some of the the problems in America. Um, yeah. And some of our biggest warts, I think, have shown, and they've done it all at the same time in a way. Yeah, um, it's all come in a, just a flurry, which has a multiplier effect in terms of uh, how evident it is, and also how damaging it is. Yeah. Um. And I think you know I mentioned this on the. Uh, the George Floyd episode, but I think where we go as a society and, and sort of who we become is going to be driven by the youth. I think the youth in today's day and age, you know, there was a big youth movement in 08 uh, leading up to, you know, President Obama's first term. And I think it kind of withered away a little bit uh, through disinterest, through whatever else, like rise of social media. I don't know what, like, I'm not going to like pontificate on what that might've been. I think we're starting to see an emergence again now. Um, one of the things that I've always found interesting is like people, you know, there's going to be books written about why Trump won in 2016 and like what the hell was going on when nobody predicted it. And I think they always talk about the silent majority and the people who were fed up and wanted to speak up and like the disenfranchised. Right. I think that like young progressives are the next wave of disenfranchised people where they feel that the oppression has reached a limit, right? 
uh, whether that's racial, whether that's uh, sexual orientation, whether that's um, economic. And I think there's going to be a lot of change on that front because people are finally going to put their collective fists together and say enough is enough. And, you know, that's led by young athletes. That's going to continue to be led by young people who are out protesting in the streets. And I think I think it's important. But I think the, the same thing I said back in June is like you, you have to keep the momentum and you have to keep some actionable goals ahead of you. And that's what's going to drive the success or the achievement of any type of objective. Yeah, and you talk about the the youth. It's already well documented that kids these days, the, the kids that are growing up today are much more empathetic than the kids of 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, you know, for all the flaws of, you know, we talk about, oh, kids these days are always on their, you know, screens and iPads and they don't have the same kind of social engagement that we used to. But on the flip side, a lot of the things that are coming out are there's the concept of bullying has dramatically decreased. The concept of understanding someone being a different race, understanding someone being a different, um, you know, identifying themselves as a different gender gender, mm-hmm. uh, or nonconforming to gender. Like all of that is becoming much more accepted that I think, like you said, in 20, 30, 40 years, you hope that a lot of this gets phased out. Um, it's kind of yeah. like Brexit, right? Where it's. A lot of that's really driven by the older population, by um, these stark patriotic attitudes that I just don't think are exist in today's youth. And so that's the hope. Right. But like you said, um, you can't just wait until that happens. Uh, there needs to be a plan to keep moving forward, because if you don't like, I, like Trump caught us blindsided and yeah. you know, no one expected that to happen. And we were sitting on our kind of complacent thinking it'd be Hillary. We'd have the. Um, another four years of the Democrats in office. And and I think hopefully this time we realize everyone goes out and votes, but um, we need well, to keep crazy is The day. Republicans were thinking that too. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't really, they weren't accepted. I mean, like you can look at every single person who's like some part of Trump administration or like related to the campaign. All those guys slammed him in 2015 and 2016. And so mm-hmm. none of them were expecting it either. And it really caught people off guard. And I think it's a very good lesson. Like you said, is like, complacency um is is basically like where a lot of this stuff props up but um you know i think whether or not you know however we move forward um you know in this election i obviously everyone's waited with bated breath on kind of what happens we have to figure out a more workable model because right now it's it's not i don't know what to say because there's two sides who just who talk past one another, right? Um, if you've ever gotten in a, an argument or debate with someone who has the opposite, opposite like political ideology, at this point, there's nothing you're even like commonly yeah. agreeing on. Nope. And so I don't know where we go. I wanted to ask you one question as we kind of go back. I just want to quickly double back to the to the protest because I think um, this is something that's important. But like I said between now and October 15th or whatever the season's supposed to end, the reality is there's likely going to be another um, one of these types of incidents, right? Yep. Just the numbers would indicate. Do you think that was part of the calculus in this decision to come back? Like we're not going to do this again? Or do you think it's, I mean, like they can't control the emotions of how they feel and they can't control some of that raw kind of reaction to anything that happens 
Um, so how do you think they manage that? Not just for the rest of this bubble, but even kind of moving forward, knowing how much more aware and uh, active some of these players are than they have been in years past. I don't know how they manage it, honestly. I don't know what it's going to look like moving forward. Um, I, it, it, I'm interested to see how the players come out on Saturday and Sunday itself, like what the, the tone is going to be, how they're going to get through this, because you're right, it could happen again. Um, I, I don't know. What do you think? I just I don't think that they would threaten to not come back again. Because I think, look, them playing in the bubble or not playing in the bubble can't really stop or, or like slow any of the activity outside the bubble, right? So the only kind of resources that they can control are those of the owners, right? And I think that by laying out this list of actions, not all of which is immediate, right? Some of, it, some of which is over the course of time. As long as the owners continue to, to, to deliver against that list or whatever it is, I think the players will feel placated to some degree, and yep. I think they'll feel heard. And ultimately, that's all they, they can ask for. And, and we also have to realize, like, every two weeks, half the teams are out. So really, it's going to be about fewer and fewer voices, and they're going to continue to move forward because they're also, frankly, closer to the title. And, like, let's be honest, they're NBA professional players, and winning a title is the greatest thing you can do in your career. So I think all of those factors would indicate that we're probably going to see um, a pretty smooth finish to the season in terms of just activity of games and such. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I, I think they're going to hope that that list of demands and some progress is being made on that front. I don't think the boycott, it's not going to be like, oh, we might boycott again. That's not going to be the threat. Mm-hmm. And because, look, if the CBA gets ripped up, that's less money. Uh, the players get less empowered. Like, that's actually a win for the owners um, if they rip up yeah. the current CBA. And so I think they know that. I think they realize that. It's not just about, like, people can't dumb the argument down to, oh, no, they need to get paid, so they want to keep playing. It is because yeah. a new CBA means, yes, they get paid less, but less power for the players as well. Um, and so that all matters. And so I think you're right. They're they're not going to boycott again. Yeah. But um, I think they've done enough, hopefully, to at least get some get the ball rolling. Yeah. And that's all you can ask for. Yeah, and I think, look, the CBA being ripped up isn't good for the owners either. Yes, maybe they like get to share more of the revenue in like, a new contract, but they don't want that type of negative attention towards the league. I think everyone wants to finish this out, all of the work. Yeah. That's, I mean, the pie is going to grow smaller yeah. in, for everyone, but they're going to take a bigger ownership of the pie if the players end up backing out. Like, that's just inevitable. But I don't think they have that kind of like relationship of, I, yes, they sit on opposite sides of the negotiating table, but I do think it's it, it's more of a partnership of like what. It's not in their best interest. Yeah. yeah. What creates the biggest pie for all of us, right? Yeah. I think that's yeah. more of the mindset. You know, the last thing I'll say before we wrap up is, you know, a lot of people talk about like, oh, what are the actual statistics of black men being killed by cops and all of these things. And like, is this really a big deal? I think what people are really failing to recognize is like you said, with, um, you know, Mo Harkless, that example is a perfect, perfect, uh, anecdote for what I'm referring to. And Bradley Beal has talked about how he got pulled over once and cops said, I can really fuck up your headlines tomorrow, that type of thing. I think what people don't realize is when we look at statistics, when we look at 
um, actual reported numbers. That's a fraction of what actually happens in real life. Um, that's a fraction of what the unreported uh, stops, even though there's nothing to be found, or the, un- the frisking on the side of the road, or just even like the looks or, or, or sort of the extra line of questioning. All of those types of things are materially impactful on a psyche of a black person, right? It doesn't go into a database. It doesn't go into any type of like calculation, but it matters and it collectively ends up with something like Jacob Blake. It ends up manifesting in these situations. It doesn't matter that he has an arrest record or he was a criminal, he has a knife because there's some part in the timeline between where they ended up and where they started that they could have stopped. And kind of collectively thought to always be fearful, to always sort of like have your guard up. And these type of like prejudices almost only propagate behavior. It creates more mistrust and it creates more conflict. And I think when we think about all of the situations that happen that we don't hear about, that's when you realize that the number that Jacob Blake or George Floyd or Breonna Taylor may represent is really just minuscule in terms of, you know, what's the reality. So I think that was the only thing that I wanted to say that I always think about is, as people throw the numbers and statistics and that argument out. I mean, it's a, it's a great point. It's, I hate when that stats argument comes up. Oh, well, you know, if you actually look at the, the crime data like this, because all this, none of this is captured. None of this is done. And it's, it's all, but it exists. It exists in every level of society, whether you're an NBA player or, you know, I mean, if you're a black person, it doesn't matter if you're an NBA player. It doesn't matter if you're a, an actual criminal, like you're all treated the same. And that's, that's the scariest part. Um, mm-hmm. But but I agree, man. I, uh, you know what? But I am proud. I want to wrap up on this. I am proud of the NBA. I'm proud of, of all the players and what they did. And yeah, it's not perfect. And yeah, you can poke holes at it happened too fast or LeBron did this or that. But ultimately, it was the right thing for them to do. I think the players even emotionally needed to get this off their chest. And it's a way of, look, we're not letting this all just happen while we play basketball. This is mm-hmm. important to us. We're taking a stance. And yes, we may still continue to play basketball, but we want everyone to know that this isn't over. And I think that is still an important um, kind of announcement to make, and I'm glad they made it. All right, so that's a wrap for us today. Um, As we mentioned, the games will kick off again this weekend. Uh, By next week, we should be back into the swing of things, talking basketball. Uh, Hopefully the product on court uh, stays as competitive and entertaining as it has been for the first uh, three or so, no, yeah, four plus weeks of the bubble almost. So um, thank you for listening. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please email us at thickandthinhoops at, at gmail.com. I, I'm sure a lot of you have had a lot of thoughts on this topic. Um, I think there's a lot of different reactions that that are coming out that uh, we'd love to take a, you know, take a listen to. And please rate, review, subscribe to Thick and Thin on all major podcast platforms. And we will talk to you next week.